When I was a little boy, I was also a little daredevil. And it's almost as if my brother and I woke up every morning and said, what is the, what is the most dangerous thing we can do today? And we tried to figure that out and do it. And we had fun on our bikes, riding through the, the woods and riding on our dr- driveway, jumping the ramps that we made on our driveway. But inevitably, what would happen is we would fall down and hurt something. I would scrape my knee or land hard on my elbow. Something bad would happen and I would get hurt or my brother would get hurt as sometimes was more likely the case. But my mother had a saying in some of those instances. You know how moms have their sayings. Well, her saying was, it'll get better before you get married. And that was her her gentle way of saying, get over it. (laughs) You'll be okay. Get over it. Well, sometimes in difficult circumstances, lose loved ones, um, going through sickness or difficulties. Sometimes in those instances, Christians will say things that, that are not all that helpful. They might say true things like God is in control and God is sovereign and God will see you through this. And those are true things and they're appropriate at certain times, but at other times they are not always that comforting. Rather words like, I'm here with you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is watching over you. He is the good shepherd. Our more comforting, our presence there. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians 7 and following, when we come to commands like be content in your circumstances, those commands might not feel all that comforting to us. In some circumstances like that, when a brother or sister tells you everything is going to be okay, what is one of the natural responses that you have? Easy for you to say. You're not in this. You're not suffering through this right now. You didn't just lose your loved one. You're not facing the trials that I'm facing. And so we might be tempted to respond that way to Paul. In this, what I would call an implicit command here in First. Corinthians 7, to be content in your circumstances. We might be uh, tempted to reject that and to say, you don't know what I'm going through right now. You don't know the circumstances I'm facing. But remember, we, we must remember where this is coming from. First of all, it's coming from Paul. Did, did he not face terribly trying circumstances in his own life? Did he not face imprisonment and suffering and going without not, have, not having his needs being met, and yet he was able to say, I've learned the secret of being content. Christ is his strength. And not only do we hear this command, be content in your circumstance, coming from Paul, this, we, we recognize this is the word of God. This, these are Jesus' words. These are Jesus' commands to be content in your circumstances. And what circumstances did Jesus face? He faced suffering as well. He faced persecution. He faced all of his friends leaving him in his moment of darkest despair. And he even faced the circumstance of his own father forsaking him as he died on the cross for our sins. Complete loneliness for our sake. 
And it is this Jesus who tells us, be content in your circumstances. And the one who gives us his spirit that we might be empowered and enabled to have contentment in our circumstances. So this command comes not from one who doesn't know what it's like. It comes from one who has been through every trial and temptation like we have yet without sin. It's, one, it's a command that comes from one who has compassion on us in our sufferings, in our need. And so as we read this passage, keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. The scripture says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already certain? When he was already circumcised, he is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in circumcision? Uncircumcision. He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, he has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried, the virgin, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter... If she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, but he does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. May God add 
his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, this uh, part of your word, we pray that you would bless us by it, that you would nourish your people, that you would nourish us in faith. You would bring us to repentance in those areas in which we are not displaying contentment, but we are restless and uh, panicking, perhaps. We pray that you would uh, firm up our faith, that we would... um, that we would be patient, that we would be still and rest in your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You might have a difficult time finding, well, what is, what is the point of all these detailed instructions Paul is giving about all these particular situations? Because many of them, it, it may feel like, don't really apply to us. This giving of your daughter in marriage or Uh, or not giving her uh, in marriage. Well, it's clear that, as we said last week, Paul is addressing some specific situations within the Corinthian church. And we're only getting one side of the story. We're only hearing Paul's side of the story. We don't know some of the details of what they were facing. And yet there is much for us to gain from this. I think there's an implicit command here, as I've already stated, that we ought to be content in our circumstances. But then he... Paul is not, con- uh, he's not content to just give this command of contentness. Rather, he gives truths which will enable them, which will strengthen them in their contentment. And so that's what I want to give us this morning. It's what I want us to consider from this text. This command, be content in your circumstances, and then two truths which help us in obeying that command. So the command is be content in your circumstances. Where I get this implicitly, uh, verse 17 As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. Also, verse 20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. You see this refrain over and over again. Verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. And then in verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. This refrain is Paul saying to these Corinthians, remain in that situation in which you were called. There's no reason to be jumping from situation to situation, looking over the next hill as if that pasture is greener. As though you'll finally be fulfilled if you take this path or that path. He's not saying that we can never make any changes in our lives. He's not saying you can never make any change in, in your job or where you live or any, any of those things. But rather, he's saying, don't think that you're going to find your ultimate happiness in those things. Don't think that, that that's where you'll finally be fulfilled, because none of those things will ultimately fulfill you. We will only be fulfilled as we find our joy in the Lord. So be content to remain in the situation that you are currently in, that you were called into, if the Lord wills. And recognize that you can live for God's glory in that situation. Remain in the situation you're in and be content and recognize that you can live for God's glory in that situation. So what is contentment? What do I mean when I say be content? Well, Jeremiah Burroughs gives this definition of contentment. It's somewhat difficult to follow, but I think you can get the idea. He says, It is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits, 
to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly care. So contentment is being at peace because you know that God is your Father and because you know He is in control of every situation. So a boy getting his first haircut may be frightened to death, right? He sees the scissors near his his face. He hears those clippers, and it's scary. These loud noises, these people around that he doesn't know. But if he can keep his eyes directly on his father in front of him and feel his father's strong hands clasped around his, then he can sit still. Then he can remain calm because he knows his father is near. Contentment is not delighting in the circumstance itself, Rather, it is a submission to God in that circumstance. It's a delighting in God in the midst of that circumstance. A delighting in God's wisdom and in His goodness and in His fatherly care. So why don't we have contentment in our circumstances? Why don't we have this quiet inward disposition as we face different difficulties and trials? Well, first, we don't like discomfort, do we? Which one of us enjoys being uncomfortable? Just as an experiment, you could, on the way out today, leave the heat off in your car. Or maybe if it was on a colder day, leave the heat off on your car and just see how comfortable you are. And see if you you enjoy that, if you like that. We don't like being uncomfortable. And so if, if we're just the slightest bit chilly or the slightest bit warm, we can't handle that. We've got to, make, we've got to change the situation. We prize our own comfort. Or maybe we think a change in our circumstances would cure our discomfort. Now, it might help. Changing the thermostat does help. But we think that a change in our circumstances would not only help a little bit, but it would cure our discomfort. But another reason we don't have contentment in our circumstances is I think we are short-sighted in regards to the temporary nature of our discomfort. We're short-sighted in regards to the temporary nature of our discomfort. So that saying of my mother, it'll get better before you get married, there's actually some truth in that. As I contemplated the scrape on my knee, I recognized, you know, over time I won't even remember that this took place. It's not true in every case, but in often in our situations, in many of the pressing situations we find ourselves in, the discomfort we face, the pain that we face, we, we blow it out of proportion because we can't understand that this is only temporary. A man's willing to get a flu shot and endure that temporary pain so that he won't have to experience the greater pain which will last much longer. We're also short-sighted, I think, in regards to the purposes of our discomforts. The purpose of our discomforts. How God, in particular, uses our discomfort for our good. And now we're talking about God's providence, His sovereignty. So in contrast to these natural impulses against contentment, Paul calls for contentment in all sorts of circumstances. So what he does, what he's doing in this passage, is he's laying out five case studies. Five case studies for remaining in your own situation. So in verses 18 and 19, 
He says, were you circumcised when you were called? Or were you uncircumcised when you were called? By that, he's meaning when you were saved, when you were called by God into salvation, what, what circumstance were you in? Now, there was actually a, <clears throat> a sort of uh, procedure, a surgery that they, they could do in that time period that they did do in that time period in order to reverse the effects of circumcision. And they were wondering, you know, am I embarrassed because I am, I am a, a, aligning myself with this Jewish context? Do I want to change? They were actually considering these things. Should I change uh, for my own prestige, for the way others might consider me? And Paul says, no, none of that matters. Ultimately, what matters is your devotion to God. Ultimately, what matters is not these old civil laws about Old Testament Israel. What matters is faithfulness in the circumstance you're in, the keeping of the commandments of God. Or what about slave or free? Were you a slave when you became a Christian? When you uh, heard the gospel and responded in faith? Or were you a free man? Verses 21 to 23. Don't worry about it, but if you are able to become free, rather do, do that. So he's not saying, look, if you have an opportunity to get free, just still remain in the circumstance you're called. He's saying it would be good for you to be free, but don't worry about it. Don't obsess over it. Don't think you can't serve God in the place you're in as a slave. Get free if you can, but don't worry about it. You were bought with a price. You're not really anyone's slave, but the Lord's. Be faithful where you are. Verses 25 to 35, he has this case study again of staying single or getting married. Um, And ultimately, he says, you should consider remaining how you are. Remaining in the circumstance in which you were called, in which you find yourself in. But you you also notice the, the pastoral sensitivity but you're not sinning if you get married. There, there is some liberty in these things. There is some liberty concerning each situation, and yet he sees spiritual advantages for the single people of remaining single. We see that in verse 28. We talked some about this last week. If you marry, verse 28, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Paul's concern is that they would be diverted from their main task of serving the Lord in faithfulness. That there would be some distraction put in their way. That they would face troubles as a result of changing their circumstances. Also, we see he goes on about some spiritual advantages in verses 29 to 31. But I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened so that... Wait, that's not quite where I'm looking at. 29, verse uh, 29 to 31... Sorry, I missed that. Anyway, the, the aim there is that he would free them from distraction. Remain how you are, but to change is not necessarily a sin. There are spiritual advantages to remaining single. Ah, now I found it. Verses 34 and 35. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And so verse 35 again, this I say for your own benefit. So Paul's looking out for their own benefit 
not to put a restraint upon you, not binding your conscience, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure, pay attention to this, undistracted devotion to the Lord. This is what Paul is after in each of these circumstances, that they might pursue a single-minded devotion to the Lord. The fourth case study is to let your daughter marry or not. And so here we're thinking of arranged marriages where the father uh, arranges certain marriages for his daughter or not. And ultimately, he again leaves this to the conscience of those who are involved. Deciding in one's own heart. Be convinced of it in your own heart. One doesn't sin this way. One doesn't sin in the other way. Yet Paul does see an advantage for allowing her to remain single in light of the, the situation they were in. And then verses 39 to 40, he gives this case study of widows. Should a widow remain single or should she get married? And Paul says she ought to consider remaining the situation she's in, but she does not sin if she marries. There is freedom to remarry as long as you're remarrying one in the Lord. And again, Paul expresses his preference for remaining single. Well, what is, what is the point in all of these case studies that Paul is giving? It is this, to live with faithfulness in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. To live with faithfulness. We often think we'd be happier if we were in different circumstances. right? That's often how we think about our contentment. If I could only be in a different circumstance, then I would be more fulfilled. I would be happier. But sometimes we also kind of baptize or spiritualize our discontentment. And we say things like, if I could only be in a different situation, then I could serve God better. Then I could, I could serve Him more fully. If, if my situation was changed, then I could really be about the work of God. But this too is discontentment and not glorifying to God. Rather, we ought to be faithful in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. So are you, do you feel like you are in a dead-end job? Or you're just frustrated with your, with your work? What, what is your response in that situation? To frantically go about trying to find another situation? To bounce from here to there until you can find the one that will finally fulfill you? Or is it to find how you can be faithful in your present circumstance? Or maybe you're in no man's land, you feel like. Uh, Your life is up in the air. You're not sure which direction it should take. And you're thinking, well, if I could could just settle this, if I could just get a, a good direction for my life, then I could go about the work of serving God. Then I could go about the work of being um, involved in a local church and being faithful to God and serving Him. But here too, God is calling you to be faithful in the situation you've been called, in which you're presently in. Maybe you're facing relational strife or financial difficulty. If I could only make $500 more a month, then I would be in a place where I could actually begin to serve the Lord. I could begin to show hospitality. I could begin to do other things in which I could be faithful in serving the Lord. Or maybe you're facing sickness or some other trial and you think, if if only my circumstances would change, then I could serve the Lord. 
But the Lord is calling you to contentment in all of these circumstances. And he's calling you to faithfulness in all of these circumstances. Because you can be faithful in your current circumstance only to the extent you have contentment in them. Think about that. If you don't have contentment in your circumstance, you're not going to be able to be faithful to God in living by faith in that circumstance. Because you're restless, you're panicked inside, you're trying to figure out how you can change your situation, not how you can serve the Lord. How, in your circumstance, could contentment free you up to be faithful? How could contentment in the current circumstance, the things that you're facing right here and now, Free you up to serve God more faithfully. Because this is what we're called to. This is what we're called to for contentment in the midst of our circumstances. And Paul not only gives this command, he also gives us something to hang on to, something to motivate us, something to strengthen us so that we might pursue contentment. He gives practical advice for each of these circumstances, and he gives them truths which will stir them up and stir us up to contentment. So these are two truths which encourage us to contentment in our own circumstances. Number one, God is in control, and the time is short. God is in control, and the time is short. We see God's providence, that he is in control, that he is sovereign in verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. Unbelievers might espouse a sort of contentment because no one is in control. So they might, resign, they might resign themselves to their fate because, you know, what's, what will be, what will, what will be, will be. I would just have to go with the flow because there's nothing I can do about it. But we espouse it, and the Scripture espouses contentment, not because no one is in control, but because God is in control. He is the one who is sovereignly behind all things, working in the midst of all things, in all situations, for His glory and for the good of His people. This is what the Scripture tells us. Believe this, brothers and sisters. He is working in the midst of your darkest hour for His glory and for your good. And so we resign not to one's fate, not to our fate, but we submit to the sovereignty of God. Charles Spurgeon has this quote about God's sovereignty. I may have read it before, but it, it just it speaks to me. It strengthens me. It encourages me to know that God is in control. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God is in control of all things. And this is an encouragement to us because he is good and he is working for our good. And it's not like there's nothing we can do about it. We don't just resign ourselves to fate as though 
There's nothing we do. Rather, we do something. Inwardly, we find contentment in His sovereignty and we trust Him. We are content and we have faith in Him. Outwardly, this shows itself in faithfulness, in the circumstance we find ourselves in, and in prayer. So what does the Scripture tell us? In Philippians 4, 4 through 4-7, the Scripture says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are called to contentment and faith inwardly, and we are called to faithfulness in prayer outwardly. Now, the particular truths about God's providence that we see here in verse 17 are are three. First, God has assigned something to each. You see that? God has assigned or apportioned something to each one. This is a... There's a connotation here in this word of a gift that God is giving you either in your circumstances or in gifts of grace to be able to endure your circumstances. Number two, God has called each one. This word calling refers throughout this passage to salvation. One who has called the situation in which you have been called remain in that situation. But it's also referring to this idea, this sense of vocation. That God has put you in a particular place for His glory. That He's put you in a particular job. That He's put you in a particular family. That He's put you where you are for His glory. We often think of vocation or a calling as something mysterious that God does. uh, Kind of through, through our minds as we seek His will. And yet... As we think about maybe the calling of a pastor, the vocation of a pastor, it has more to do with one's desire, one's giftedness, and confirmation that indeed he does have these these gifts. And the same we could consider for our own perspective vocations in life. God not only gives us a calling, a place to serve, he also gives us the gifts in order to serve him with faithfulness in those situations. So God is not only calling you to be faithful in your circumstances, he's also gifting you with grace and with strength and with equipment to be able to handle those circumstances. And the third particular truth about God's providence is in verse 24 that God is present with each person. Verse 24, each one is to remain with God. He adds that little wrinkle. Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. God is not only giving us what we need in our circumstances to glorify him, he's not only called us in salvation and to serve him, he is present with us. So if God has sovereignly assigned us a place and gifts to equip us for that place, for that circumstance, then we can be content in our circumstances. If you're in a circumstance, He will equip you for it or He will give you the grace to endure it. If God has called each one of us in salvation and to His service, then we can be content in our circumstance. If God is present with us in our circumstances if He is with us by His Spirit, then we can be content in our circumstances. 
See, discontentment is not just discomfort or unhappiness in your particular circumstance. Think about what it is that discontentment is. At best, it is a short-sightedness, a failure to see the truth because of your present difficulties. It's hard to see sometimes when you're in the midst of difficulties. So you're, you're body surfing in the ocean and a huge wave comes up and just lifts you up and body slams you on the, the, on the ground, on the bottom of the ocean. And you're disoriented. You don't know which way is up. You, you think maybe that way is up, but you're not really sure. You can't see the truth of the situation because of the tumult of it. And in the same way, sometimes in the midst of the situation, we can't see the truth. We can't see that God is sovereign and that he is working for our good. And so, some, so at best, discontentment is this failure to see. But at worst, it is unbelief and denial of God's faithfulness. At worst, discontentment is denying that God has sovereignly placed you here. It is saying God has not sovereignly put me where I am. God has not equipped me for this. God has not called me into his salvation and his servant service, and God is not present with me. That's what discontentment is. If discontentment could speak, the words it would say to God would be, I don't trust you. I just don't trust you. But in contrast to this, consider the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That though we have said with our actions, with our thoughts, with our words, time and time again to God, I I just can't trust you with this. Though we have rejected his sovereignty and his goodness many times throughout our lives, consider Jesus' faithfulness for us. His contentment in his situation in life. With every breath, the life of Jesus spoke the words to God, I trust you. His family said he was crazy. You remember that? And Jesus' behavior said, I trust you, Heavenly Father. When he had no place to lay his head, when people tried to kill him in the Garden of Gethsemane, when it seemed like the burden was too great, Jesus said to his Father, I trust you. I trust you. When he was beaten, when he suffered on the cross for our sins, when he suffered under the wrath of God for your sins and my sins, Jesus was saying, I trust you, Heavenly Father. Even with this, even as dark and difficult as this is, I trust you. How do we know that he trusted God through it all? Because when it came time for him to breathe his last, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm entrusting myself to you, Heavenly Father. Everything Jesus did was in faithful obedience and trust to the Heavenly Father. And this is how we've been purchased for God. He has saved us from our sins. And if we can trust God with the biggest things in life, with our eternal salvation, then we can trust him also for the smaller problems that we face in life, for the circumstances that we face here and now. 
And really, until you trust him for the biggest problem you face, your sin and death and the hell that you deserve, the smaller problems won't make any sense and you won't be able to trust him for those either. You can trust him. He has called us. He has saved us. He has placed us in our particular places for his glory. He is equipping us for those situations and he has filled us with his Holy Spirit. He is with us. We can trust him. God is in control and this spurs us to contentment. But also notice another truth that God gives, that Paul gives to strengthen us in contentment is this, the time is short. Verse 26, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Some think he's referring to a famine here. Some think uh, maybe some other difficulty, a rampant sickness that's going throughout Corinth. Perhaps, perhaps, though, I think it's better to see this more generally. The urgency of living in the last day. We see this through other places in Scripture. That this age, this time between Jesus' coming and his returning is short. There's to be an urgency about our lives. The time is short. Also look at verses 29 to 31. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And on he goes. In other words, uh, the things of this earth, the things of this age are wrapping up. So kids, when mom says it's time to start wrapping things up, that doesn't mean you grab another toy and start figuring out how you can play some more. It means you start wrapping things up. You start getting ready to leave. And when God said things are wrapping up in this world, the time is short, you don't start engaging yourselves in all kinds of different areas so that it will distract you from your main calling, which is to serve the Lord. All kinds of new endeavors which would pull you away, distract you from serving Christ. He's speaking of the already and the not yet. Already the kingdom of God is breaking in and yet it is not here. Well, Paul's words help us to understand what he's saying. He gives these uh, examples. Those who have wives should be as though they had none. How do you do that? How do you act as though you're not married when you are married? It's not by shirking your responsibilities. You're still called to faithfulness in that situation. But it has to do, one, with degrees of devotion. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So the current concern of Paul is serving the Lord without distractions, a single-minded devotion to the Lord. But also it's a distinguishing between the present age and the age to come, recognizing the temporary here and now and the eternal. Here we have marriage, but in the new heavens and the new earth, things will be different, Jesus says. So we recognize the temporary and the eternal. We distinguish between the present age and the age to come. Those who weep as though they did not weep, Paul says. We do not grieve as those who do not have any hope. We grieve as those who have hope. To weep as though you did not weep is Not to say you have no tears, but it is that through your teary, blurry vision, you see that the kingdom of God is coming. It's to see with eyes of faith the finger of your Savior wiping those tears away. Those who rejoice, 
as though they did not rejoice. It means we're getting ready for the joy that will overshadow and overcome any joy that we enjoyed in this life. The objects of our joy here on earth are limited. And the capacity for our joy here on earth is limited. It's like when you visit downtown Raleigh and you see the big city versus when you go to New York City and you come out of the subway and you are in awe of the grandeur of these buildings and the city. I love how C.S. Lewis gives us this picture in the Chronicles of Narnia. At the very end, they finally come to their destination. And they realize that everything in this life was only a shadow of the things to come. That as grand and glorious as Narnia was even, it was nothing compared to the true Narnia. And so they, they're called further up and further in, and they're traveling, and the mountains are huge. They dwarf the mountains of Narnia. They're nothing compared to these new mountains. And they're called further up and further in, and yet there are even greater mountains that dwarf the previous ones. And with each step, they get closer to their destination, what they were truly seeking all of their lives. And this is what it will be to rejoice in the kingdom of God. When this present age ends and the new kingdom comes, it will be as though we had never rejoiced before. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? We don't know what joy shall fill our hearts. Those who buy as though they did not possess, holding things loosely because you can't take them with you. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, recognizing the limitations of what this present world offers. Why? Because a new time is coming. Paul says this, the form of this present world is passing away. This temporary age is passing away. Why cling so tightly to it? Why depend so much upon it when it is passing away? And when pa- something passes away, it gives way to something new. The new is coming. We're reminded regularly that we are passing away, that we are dying. With every moment, with every breath, we come closer to that day that we will die. But what dies gives way for something new. And the scripture tells us that though the things of this world are passing away, ultimately, we who are in Christ are not passing away. We will be renewed. We will be restored. We will receive glorified bodies in which we will live for God's glory forever. We recognize since this world is passing away and we are not passing away that we were made for something more. We were made for another world. Another example from the Chronicles of Narnia in the book, The Last Battle. We read these words. As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
all of their lives in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is why we can have contentment in the here and now because we recognize God is in control. We recognize that the time is short and we recognize that a new age is dawning. The age of our king. Our king is coming. Be strong in your circumstances. Have contentment for the Lord is in control and he is good. Let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. You are the sovereign God of all the universe and you are working things for your glory. And it's difficult for us to see this sometimes in the midst of our circumstances. We struggle. We, we panic in, inwardly because of our situations, because of difficulties, because of problems and sickness and death. We pray that you would establish our hearts Not that we have enough strength to handle it, but because in our weakness, you are made, we are made strong because of your strength. Because in our weakness, your glory shines through, your strength shines through. So, Father, I pray for each one who is here this morning is maybe facing different circumstances of trial, of pain, of sorrow. And I pray that you would. Help them to see your faithfulness. Help them to see with eyes of faith that you are a good heavenly father and that their hands rest in your hands. Help us to turn away from our discontentment. Help us to turn away from the idea we can't serve you in the situation we're in. Move us to faithfulness, recognizing we belong to you because of the faithfulness of another. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.